The Balance and Falls Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the APTA, is bringing you this episode today. I will be your host. My name is Marissa Lyon. I am a physical therapist in Portland, Maine, an assistant professor at the University of New England, and on the nominating committee of the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group. And today I am delighted to have Tanvi Bott as our guest. Tanvi is a professor of physical therapy and rehabilitation sciences at the University of Illinois, Chicago, where she also directs the Cognitive Motor Balance Rehabilitation Laboratory. She's a renowned researcher and practitioner in the field of adaptive perturbation training for fall prevention. She has published numerous peer-reviewed articles, received several grants from prestigious agencies, and she was the 2023 recipient of the Research Award from the Balance and Fall Special Interest Group at the Academy of Physical Therapy Combined Sections meeting. Tanvi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Marissa, for the great introduction, and I'm delighted to be here. It is always nice to hear your bio read back to you, isn't it? I, I always enjoy that. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, uh, it adds pressure. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, well, Tanvi, first question is, I'd like to get to know your background a little bit. What inspired you to pursue a career in physical therapy? And then what inspired you to become a researcher in this field? Uh, so I did my physical therapy back in Mumbai. Uh, and... Uh, Actually, I just knew I wanted to do something related to the healthcare field, but not medicine. Uh, and uh, it, it was my parents who said, you know, uh, this would be a good field. I loved anatomy, physiology, and I went to as a preview for a college tour. And I instantly fell in love with the outpatient department. We called it OPDs. Mm -hmm. And when I saw a lot of people being treated for all these different disorders, it was mainly, mainly an outpatient uh, ortho and neuro combined. And uh, that's, that was it. Uh, I just decided this is what I wanted to do. How interesting. Now, did you practice outside of the United States before becoming a researcher? I did. I, okay. did. I practiced a lot. Yes. Wow. For how long? Uh, maybe four to five years. And then I kept up my practice in the United States uh, for about 10 years. I was working wow. in Mary and Joy uh, Rehabilitation uh, here in Illinois. Uh, yeah. Great. And then what kind of led you into wanting to become a researcher instead of staying primarily in the field of clinical practice? Uh, I just had this desire to do some higher education and do research and kind of look for more evidence-based uh, practice. Uh, and, you know, uh, so I was just intrigued by research in general, and I got an opportunity to do my master's in rehabilitation sciences in Canada. So I moved to do my master's, uh, and I did that in University of Manitoba. Uh, and neuro, in neuroscience uh, and uh, neuro rehab. And that was it. Yes. Wow. Um, what a fun uh, trajectory. I bet that you've learned things from practicing and studying in these different countries. It's really um, added some kind of depth and breadth to your research and your practice. Yes, definitely. I think uh, the clinical practice and clinical knowledge uh, and clinical decision making does guide a lot of research that you do. Uh, it's uh, asset for sure, uh, which I have kind of been able to leverage uh, during my research years. 
So that's kind of what brought you into research, but I'm interested in what specifically helped you develop an interest and then later expertise in this area of perturbation, slipping, slip training. Yeah. You kind of started some of your research career in the area of assessment and then kind of some analysis of what contributes to falls related to slips and then um, have done a little bit more with the intervention side. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so my primary uh, exposure to this field, which we now call perturbation-based training, was during my master's, uh, and it was in 1998, and my professor had this lab, and at that time, it was all black, covered, because we did motion analysis, and we had these very old, uh, you know, cameras, so there would be no light allowed, but we had this, he had this customized platform, which would, it was a motorized platform, which would move in the forward and backward direction at high velocities, and that would perturb someone's balance, uh, and which is kind of displacing the relationship between your center of mass and base of support, mm-hmm. uh, having us to take what we call recovery steps or induce a fall. And so he was studying the neuromechanics of uh, such kind of uh, falls versus recoveries uh, induced due to these motorized perturbations. And I did my thesis in that, and we looked at recovery uh, from these stance perturbations in people with chronic stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is what got in- me interested into this assessment. And then I decided to move on to do my doctorate, and I moved to Illinois. And I was fortunate enough to find another a lab which suited my interests. Uh, and my professor, Dr. Pai, uh, was again looking into causative factors for falls, uh, mainly environmental falls, such as slips and trips. And, uh, you know, it was a hypothesis that uh, once we know what really causes the fa- uh, falls, not more of an associative relationship, but a causative uh, knowledge of the factors of falls, we could guide interventions specifically towards uh, preventing falls. So that's that's how, yeah. Uh, and then once I completed my doctorate, I just was loving the field. It was new, it was innovative, uh, and we really saw good results uh, of what we did, uh, which we call as adaptive perturbation-based training, where we saw that there was a quick difference that we could make uh, in lowering slip or trip-related fall risk. Very interesting. So it kind of was a, the lab where you were originally was doing work in this area, and then you were very interested in it kind of as time went on. Uh, It kind of sounds like. Yes. Yes. I I think one of the interesting things about your field of work that I thought was, was really interesting is that you have done work in, you know, sometimes we talk about kind of efficacy versus effectiveness or more bench versus clinical research. And you've done a bit of both, some real kind of motion analysis. Why is the person falling looking at kind of these Mm -hmm. real technical studies as well as a little bit more clinical? Um, So I think that finding one person that's done both of those was really interesting for me um, looking at your body of work. Yeah, thank you. Yes, that's how it was. It's a long journey. I've been doing this for 20 years. So we started like, you know, it's like putting uh, pieces of puzzles together and to kind of discover the whole story. So we really started from the initial very basic biomechanical work, uh, moving into understanding a little bit more of neuromuscular mechanisms, which is so-called looking at EMG. And uh, later on looking at, okay, what does the central nervous system really do? So we've done some studies into that. 
and then going into more clinical trials, uh, which kind of discovering the protocols that would help if clinicians had to kind of look at it, uh, dose response, et cetera. So yes, it's, it's yeah, um, really, really actionable information for clinicians to look at and say, okay, now I can understand why this is happening, but now I also have useful information for how to do it somewhat. Yep. Um, so about kind of perturbation and, and, you know, adaptive perturbation, kind of slip training, kind of already mentioned that it might be called a couple different things, but um, training interventions in this area of reactive balance, unexpected perturbations have risen in popularity recently. So you see uh, more papers, more talks at conferences about this. Um, you've been doing research in this area for, as you said, more than 20 years. So is there anything specific that you think has contributed to this increasing awareness of the importance of examining and treating reactive balance? Uh, I, I think it's uh, more uh, dissemination uh, and uh, people accept, the more research that comes out, people kind of start accepting it uh, and saying, okay, there is this critical uh, gap, right? There are uh, lots of fall prevention interventions, a lot of them work, but as we know that there are two kinds of balance control systems, uh, volitional and reactive, mm -hmm. and there's been very little research towards this reactive balance assessment and training, but most environmental falls uh, we think are caused due to uh, impairments in this reactive balance when you're you know you're unaware of an upcoming threat to your balance and you suddenly find yourself in that situation it's your reactive balance which will say either trigger certain motor responses uh, it could be if the perturbation is small or the disturbance is small it could be just standing a strategy such as we learned the ankle and hip strategies and if the perturbation intensity increases then you resort to these stripping strategies so i think uh, the concept was already already there since the 80s you know lou nashner and fehorak uh, kind of introduced that right. but i think uh, a big part is also the evolution of technology. People always wanted to study this and unless they had customized uh, labs and right. a lot of space, there was just uh, fewer means of people to study it. But with uh, commercialization of technology and a lot of advent of these motorized uh, platforms and treadmills being uh, available for purchase, I think it was easier for a lot of more people to start examining it, studying it and implementing it. Right. So kind of right off of that, my question for you is at this point, um, what would you, how would you describe what this perturbation training is? So what you, you and, and other researchers have generally yeah. found to be effective in, in the clinic as much as possible. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess we would describe perturbation training as a task specific training mm -hmm. where you kind of challenge the participant in the task you want them to learn. Uh, so fall prevention is one, and we know that these perturbations induce falls. So it's a safe form of exposing uh, your clients to these repeated uh, environmental perturbations, such as slips and trips mm -hmm. uh, in some lateral or like side-to-side -side perturbations in a safe environment. Uh, so typically, uh, Clients do need to don uh, safety harness if available, uh, even in the clinics, uh, if they're going to be exposed to larger so-called motorized perturbations. Mm -hmm. If uh, in the clinics there is ways, other ways of uh, delivering this training, if you don't have uh, exposure to technology such as a motorized platform or a 
treadmill by manually, you know, giving pulls and pushes. Uh, you might get away with uh, couple therapists guarding, but if you have a ceiling mounted uh, safety harness track uh, or a system that is definitely recommended. Yeah, absolutely. One question that I have had is kind of the difference between uh, a slip, which is often uh, a person on top of either a motorized or non-motorized platform that unexpectedly moves often in the anterior, posterior, maybe medial lateral plane versus a nudge or a push either directed at the shoulders or the trunk versus a pull. So kind of like that pull test you see done and say maybe a hone and yard or some other test where a person leans into or what like what's done in the mini best leans into yeah. and then has an unexpected loss. There's some other kind of slightly higher technology where there's like a strain gauge that breaks at a certain point. So how do you see kind of the difference between this slip underneath the foot versus a push versus a pull? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. That's a great question. Again, uh, so, and also uh, the next question, which I'll cover a little bit, or, or the topic would be yeah. a motorized versus a non-motorized perturbation. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, in a sense, in all these different things that you described, we're inducing a balance loss or a fall in a different direction. So when I talk about a slip or a trip and say in an overground, uh, which is most ecological and what we see regularly uh, while walking. Right. So a slip uh, typically involves anterior or forward movement of the base of support, which is your feet uh, or your heels and induces a backward balance loss or backward falls. Uh, typically when we say a trip, it's presumed that uh, you're gonna have a forward fall because your foot gets held in or blocked by an object. It could be a curb, it could be an object and your center of mass is moving forward, inducing a forward fall. Okay. Now, when you're doing the nudges, like you said, or, you know, it could mean the same. When you are pulling someone and releasing them, you're inducing a forward fall because you're pulling them at the back and you release. So center of mass is going to move forward where your feet are in your place. When you're pushing someone, uh, it would induce probably a backward balance loss. Uh, and it's the same thing with the wasteful perturbations. It's just a different direction of balance loss uh, that you're kind of inducing, I guess, with the goal of displacing the center of mass and your base of support. Okay. And the recovery strategies uh, typically taken are very similar, where you're going to take a step in the direction of the balance loss to recover. Okay, so it sounds like a clinician implementing something like this. What you're really looking for is whatever technology you have, ideally yeah. keeping the person safe through therapist guarding or harness, mm -hmm. any type of stimulus that's sufficiently large enough to induce a slip or a trip, which would require often a, which is really ideally would require a step of some kind, yeah. posteriorly, anteriorly, maybe to the side, um, whether it's a movement under the foot, at the trunk, anything like that. Yeah, and I, I would uh, be careful. Some people don't like us using the word slip and trip uh, right. when you're kind of doing standing uh, perturbations or stance perturbations. So we basically just said direction specific. Right. Uh, but yes, it simulates a slip-like or a trip-like fall. Right, right. And and really when, when, if, when someone is trying to do this in the clinic, it sounds like what we're trying to do is have a stimulus that's sufficiently intense enough to stimulate that react strategy within the central nervous system. So to yes. kind of gauge that whole circuit. Yes, absolutely correct.
Right. Of course, yes, there's nomenclature. You always have to be careful with that because specific researchers have, and you want to be as specific as possible, but. Yeah, yeah, but that's absolutely, you're on the right Thank track. You. Yes. Um, so population that you've worked with has been um, older adults in stroke and correct me if that's not correct. Uh, uh, I have worked with older adults with stroke, but also healthy older adults, yes. uh, community dwelling who are at uh, almost a 30% fall risk. And also uh, people with mild, older adults uh, having mild cognitive impairment uh, okay. because they are almost at three times uh, at fall risk compared to their healthy peers. Okay, yes, yes. So um, what populations then overall have you seen through either your direct research or your collaborations that benefit from this kind of training? Yeah, so apart from the ones I mentioned, there's a lot of work being done in people with Parkinson's disease and also people with multiple sclerosis. So that is more from a rehab perspective, uh, but I also see a lot of work uh, being done now in people with uh, osteoarthritis, older adults with osteoarthritis, and also uh, some work being done in athletes and people with uh, ACL injuries. Uh, well, that's very interesting. Um, so my next question is anything that you see or hear of physical therapists that may be getting wrong when attempting to apply principles of reactive balance, perturbation, or slip training. Um, what I see often with my students or novice clinicians that I work with is doing things that people think might be a uh, reactive balance, but are, are actually at the end of the day, anticipatory, like, uh, catching and throwing a heavy ball. Um, you generally, you can see how fast it's moving after the first one, you know, how much it weighs, you know, exactly what's going to perturb you. And so even though there's some sense of a perturbation, it's anticipatory. Um, is there anything else that you see just kind of in a, like a, a guide to doing this as effectively as possible? You, you'd recommend clinicians think about, uh, as a first step, I do feel that, you know, a general awareness, uh, for reactive balance assessment and uh, training or interventions is kind of uh, limited. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I would like to encourage therapists to at least incorporate some form of assessment, uh, either like you mentioned, using the one component of the mini best test, the pull push, uh, or even if you have any sort of treadmill and a simple light gate or safety harness system at disposal, just kind of accelerate the treadmill, decelerate the treadmill, look at the reactive stepping responses if you want to challenge your clients a little more. So please incorporate some sort of uh, reactive balance assessment. And then uh, subsequently, in terms of training, you rightly mentioned a lot of uh, so-called uh, interventions that focus more on this anticipatory uh, control and people might perceive it's more reactive uh, because they feel they're responding to something even like uh, standing on a wobble ball or a, or a balance uh, disc uh, you know it still is more targeting volitional balance training but people who are delivering perturbations I think one challenge I've seen uh, people face is they uh, they struggle with uh, being creative with how can we deliver this in a clinic if we don't have a some kind of an equipment mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, as as I present at more uh, you know conferences people are getting creative where they simple manual uh, nudges do work uh, also I think if you really want to simulate a 
slip people do use, you know, uh, kind of frictionless surfaces and uh, try to simulate a slip or a trip, uh, just a simple wax paper under your feet. And Ooh. yeah, yeah. So people have done that. Uh, and that works very well as well. Uh, you kind of have people walk over it, but you, if, if it's always best if you have a safety harness system for that, yeah. because that doesn't really simulate a slip. The other thing is uh, people don't know the intensity, like, like you mentioned, how much force to apply, you know, while being safe. Uh, so uh, intensity in terms of uh, the intensity of the perturbation, also dosage in terms of the frequency, the number of repetitions uh, to provide, how often is this uh, kind of treatment required, like three times a week, do we in include it at every session? So mm. those are some uh, challenges that we've seen, and there is some more research required pertaining to dosing and intensity for this field specifically. So, uh, so the wax paper you mentioned, is it someone just cuts a wax paper, a patient stands on it, and then a clinician kind of pulls it? Yes, absolutely. Interesting. I'd love to hear if you have any other creative, uh, out-of-the-box things that you've heard or seen people do. Uh, we've, we've tried, and, you know, to simulate. Uh, we have also have a piece of vinyl, and then we just sprinkle a little bit of uh, baby oil in a patch, and the, the carpet patch is replaceable. So we oh, just nice. several vinyl small patches with, uh, we just lubricate it with uh, simple baby oil, and that works very well as well. And we've tested it uh, in terms of a generalization experiment that we did, because we would always get these questions, oh, it works in the lab, and uh, they can see the platforms, they can see the treadmill, and what about a real life scenario? So we had kind of simulated this, and that's that works very well too. Oh, nice. That's great. Um, yeah, I, I think it is It is hard sometimes as a clinician to see and you're like, oh, this is so good. But what they did was so technical. Um, I love some of your papers where there's the the person was walking and the, the, the platform kind of moved under them, but then there was like the sham. So they didn't know where it was going to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it doesn't take all that high tech. You can do kind of low tech things. I've seen people build platforms where it's just a, you know, plywood on, uh, rollers, kind of casters, and move that around. Uh, yeah, there was a clinician who did that, and I, I loved her. And I, she sent me a video, and yeah, I mean, I mean, she was really pulling. That was, uh, but yes, that's something they can really uh, custom build. You know, if you're into building things, that's something you can easily do. Uh, and then in terms of trips, uh, I think we've I've seen a lot of clinicians do that, and we've started doing that as just. Uh, giving exercise uh, is, you know, you just put a TheraBand uh, and people are walking and you just pull and release the TheraBand. It can simulate a trip. That's and a good one. I like that. Yeah. It doesn't simulate a trip. They trip. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> depending, on, depending on the intensity of the band and the force of the pull. Yes. That's true. That's true. Well, good. Well, thanks for those uh, kind of low tech things as our, as you know, people who listen to the podcast start to kind of think about how to try to do this. So it sounds like the um, biggest mistake that a physical therapist would make would be just not doing it. And the best thing that you can do is just get out there and try to do it with your, with your patients. Yes. Yes. Um, so my next question is what, if any non-significant trends or interesting observations have arisen during your research? So things that maybe wouldn't rise to the level of including in a manuscript, whether it's a story or something interesting that kind of popped up that you weren't measuring already and um, I find that that sometimes kind of elucidates just interesting things that people see. Uh, we try to measure a lot. So <laughs> in terms of measurement, uh, I think uh, uh, specifically quantitatively, we do measure uh, a lot of things. Uh, 
But uh, I, we do have a lot of anecdotes and testimonials, you know, when we started this research initially and as when we do our clinical trials, we were not sure of the acceptance of the stakeholders, which is really, of course, not only the clinicians, but the participants themselves. And uh, I, it's, it's really good uh, to hear when participants come back, uh, we do this long-term test. So they come back uh, after 12 months for a retention. And then they come and tell us, oh, the training really helped us. I was so aware. I slipped and I was able to catch myself or I tripped and I was able to catch myself. And uh, they all talk about uh, their fear of falling, uh, reducing and balance confidence, increasing. Although we measure this, uh, it's, uh, you know, there is... This is a sidetrack. There is a ceiling effect to the uh, activities-based balance confidence and uh, FES, uh, the false yeah. efficacy. So we really can't capture the fear of falling as effectively, but when the participants come and tell us this, it, it is really, uh, we really feel very happy that the intervention is working. Yeah, that's great. And and it's wonderful to hear that because I know the, the thing I hear too when I talk to clinicians and research is that there is a fear that patients won't like it. They won't want to do it because it's too scary or yeah. it's too intense. Um, and so just kind of hearing that patients who do it, who participate in research or do it in the clinic at the end of the day, like it and see the value in it. I yes. Think. Yes. There are some people who are hesitant, uh, but again, we've developed a lot of uh, different protocols where we start uh, with a small perturbations and progressively uh, improve them or even kind of give them some volitional uh, tasks, uh, simple nudges and pull pushes. So they kind of get uh, acclimatized and then they're more uh, kind of, we have their buy-in, so to speak, to kind of uh, take part in the protocol. That makes sense. Yeah. Kind of a nice acclimatization buy-in period, especially for something that you think someone might be afraid of. Yes. Um, that makes sense. And, and having a conversation about, Hey, this is what we're going to do. How do you feel about that? Um, and then getting them, them ramped up to that. that. That makes sense to me. Um, so kind of beyond adaptive perturbation training, I, I see that in the last couple of years, you've done some, some presentations on cognitive, uh, cognitive fatigue, its impact on balance, um, using VR dance as an aerobic capacity training program. Is there any other area that you see with additional promise or that you're looking into in any new areas of research? Uh, so in terms of, uh, I'm doing a lot of mechanistic work and mechanism work because before we develop interventions, we really like to know the uh, mechanisms of action and mechanisms of behavior change that go into those interventions. But uh, an area uh, really what I like to do, uh, look at is dual task training and what we are doing currently is a clinical trial looking at dual task perturbation training and also looking at impact of people, uh, older adults who have uh, vestibular impairments uh, uh, or hyperfunction and how uh, reactive balance training can either positively impact that, that particular population. Oh, how interesting. I definitely yeah. need to see what comes out of that. Yeah, so in terms of the dual task, we're doing a lot of uh, visuospatial uh, tracking tasks where they have to track an object displayed on the screen while they're walking and being perturbed at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then some higher executive functional tasks such as the oral trail making task. I could definitely see that having um, some early acceptability, again, acclimatization time of um, that sounds difficult. 
Yes, it, it is difficult, but you will be impressed. Uh, I mean, are surprised. Like I'm more impressed that how fast people can learn uh, and they're quickly able to overcome uh, any challenges and uh, yeah, uh, show some training effects. Um, great. Well, that's that's exciting. We'll we'll see what that comes out of that in the next next few years. So those are all my questions about your research, your work. Unless you have anything you want to add that I didn't get to, you know, sometimes I, I forget something and think, oh man, I, I want to share this other exciting tidbit. No, no, it's, it's not more clinically relevant, but again, we're very intrigued in knowing really how the brain controls reactive balance. And it's not only me, there's lots of other researchers kind of in this, in a similar pursuit, kind of trying to find out, uh, is it, the uh, is it cortical areas? Is it subcortical areas? Uh, which areas are really involved in uh, triggering and these reactive stepping responses that we see are so critical and that we're in training. So that is some work that our lab is doing using techniques such as EEG uh, and uh, imaging, like fMRI, magnetic resonance imaging, as well as mobile EEG imaging, yeah. Oh, interesting. Wow, that's very cool. And imaging techniques. Yes, and I, I, I can only say that I really want therapists to start implementing reactive balance training. Uh, if you are working in larger uh, hospitals or uh, uh, rehab centers, please advocate for motorized treadmills, uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, which is a great way of implementing this training. Uh, there are also commercially available walkways that are going to be available soon for kind of mimicking overground uh, walking, if not treadmill. Yes. And uh, I think it's just a little bit of uh, economics that if more people start accepting and implementing the costs of, of these uh, equipments can go down and uh, yeah. That's so anywhere that you think, you know, someone interested in starting to implement this or look into to equipment anywhere that you would recommend people, people look online. So obviously you can find your, your work. Uh, and your lab, but anywhere else on, on the internet or any other resources that you would recommend people look into? Yeah, I mean, there are a few commercial, um, I, I don't know, I'm allowed to name, I don't work with any of them, so. <laughs> you can disclose that you don't work with any, are there any specific pieces of equipment that you have found? To be my, yeah, our, my lab has the active step by Simvex, which uh, we use a lot, and it's a great piece of equipment. Uh, there is a relatively newer uh, treadmill called the Balance Tutor, which is being heavily, uh, I, I hear that a lot of uh, clinics have purchased that and people are using that. Uh, so those two are the main uh, motorized treadmills. And then there's this Karen system by Motec uh, Medical, but that's a more expensive, uh, more... K-A-R-E-N, is that correct? K-A-R-E-N, yes, by Motec Medical, yes. Uh, and it has a VR component. So it has uh, lots of things that you can do with, but they definitely have a motorized treadmill and a platform system as well. Okay, uh, great. Yeah. Um, okay, so my my final question, kind of my like wrap up questions, is uh, about falls and balance. So first question is, what have you fallen in love with as a physical therapist? What really makes your heart sing in the field? And it's okay if it's something we talked about already, but um, yeah, kind of what what makes you fall in love over and over again with PT? I I just uh, it's it's a passion. I love working with older adults. Uh, uh, as a population and looking at the rehab needs that they have. And this is specifically a uh, community dwelling. Mm -hmm. uh, 
healthy older adults. Uh, and uh, when I see a lot of them, when that they one fall and kind of their community mobility quality of life goes down. And I'm, I'm really, really passionate to prolong uh, their quality of life in the community uh, and work with them. So that's mm-hmm. something I'm very passionate about. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. It's that participation level, uh, kind of life quality level piece that we really we really all strive for, right? If we, if we think yeah. about it. Uh, and then my second question is, how do you keep it all in balance? So what do you do when you're not? you know, saving the older adults of the world from falling through your amazing research. What else I, do, you, do you like to do? I didn't talk about it. I always integrate what I like uh, or what I do outside of work into my work. And oh. I love dancing. Uh, so a lot of uh, Bollywood dancing uh, and a lot of yoga. So oh, nice. uh, yes, and, and I do like a lot of service. So we do go to health fairs. I organize a lot of health fairs and we do uh, bone, uh, I mean, we do osteoporosis screening. Uh, yep, cool. all risk screening, yeah, in the community, so. Nice, that's great. Um, well, if like I, if anybody wants to kind of follow up with your work, uh, I found all of your work on Google Scholar, but do you have any uh, internet resources for people to take a look at you or anything else that you'd like to kind of plug or recommend? Uh, our, our lab website is a great place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our Cogmobile lab uh, would be a great place. We have a lot of videos uh, and uh, snippets of our work. Uh, yep. I can share that in the show notes. So for the podcast show notes, I'll link your lab's website. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I know that I really learned a lot from our conversation and I have no doubt that the listeners of the Balance and Fall Special Interest Podcast will also have learned a lot. And thank you for your time and for all the work you've done over the last 20 years. I'm excited to see what you do in the next 10 or 20 years. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Uh, You've been a great host and yes, uh, really able to kind of synthesize and get all the information out. uh, So wonderfully done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast of the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information, please see the show notes or visit neuropt.org. Thank you.